I'm Danie from Journey of a Braid, and this is Braided Conversations. Poetry has been a part of my life since I was a little girl. My dad would always read poetry to me, and he was a poet himself, even though he never admitted it. Amy Gerstler has won acclaim for sly, sophisticated and submersive poems that find meaning in unexpected places. We had a virtual conversation on her latest book, Scattered at Sea, published by Penguin Poets, which will be part of Miami Book Fair online. Hi, Amy. How are you? It's such a pleasure to be speaking to you today. Um, I want to start with one of these very complicated and vast questions. What is poetry to you? Um, I, I think that's such a <laughs> great mind-blowing way to begin. Um, and I love the idea that there are as many definitions or provisional attempts to answer that question or ideas about this as there are readers and poets and every kind of consumer of art. Um, I like uh, Marinetti's, he was an Italian futurist guy, uh, idea that it's intoxication and synthesis. Um, I like uh, uh, Emily Dickinson's idea that it's like your head turns into a volcano and the top of it blows off, and that's how you recognize a true poem. Or Elizabeth Bishop saying they have to have, poems have to have spontaneity, accuracy, mystery, um, Marianne Moore has one that's like humility, gusto, and something else. I forget what the third thing is. but I, I, And it's so closely related to song, depending on what kind of poem we're talking about. But I, I think it, it's this, for me, and, and people's work comes out of what they think poems are and should be. And it's great that there's a range of definitions because that's how we get what uh, the poet James Schuyler called the various field. He has this wonderful quote where he says, I salute the various field, meaning that he likes all kinds of poetry. And we get that because people have, for one thing, because people have different voices and souls and ideas about what a poem is. This, this beautiful condensed uh, urgent expression of, of something in, in maybe a musical way, whatever music is to you. That doesn't sound too heavy or pretentious. No, but it absolutely is. And I really think that one of the problems of our time is that we don't have as many poets anymore. We're missing that connection in so many levels. Like before, you know, like family would pass it to you all the time, but right now we're so lost in our screens that we forget to listen. I think I I I hear you and I feel you. Um, I think there are actually poetry is very alive and well and vital. It, it's just that um, it's not disseminated well in the United States. So so I think platforms like this and opportunities like this are fantastic. I actually think that Zoom and Squadcast and the the some of the uh, 
platforms that we've been forced to really lean so heavily on during this awful and crazy time are, are good for poetry because they can be kind of close up and individual. Definitely. How has this been for your process, quarantine and everything that has been going up in this crazy year? Um, well, I hope, I hope you've been doing well. Have you been managing to survive it okay? You seem very vibrant and present. That is the power of the braid, which actually I was, I was really surprised to see that you speak so much about hair through your poetry. You, you talk a lot about braiding emotions. You mentioned how sadness is braided. And then you talk about dreams coming out of the hair, which is something really, really special. I even wrote the quote here because I loved it so much, where you said grief braids and unbraids. And then you also say in Bon Courage, a forest appears to a young girl one morning as she comes the dreams from her hair. I love those quotes because I'm with you in that. I, I acknowledge the power of hair. And I think it's so much more than we know. Yeah, I noticed in doing some research of you with, on you and I was like, oh, I get to talk to this woman who's taken the metaphor of the braid in all its sort of womanliness and its symbology about combining things and things being melded or twisted together or wrapped around each other. Um, in this kind of global way. When I was younger, it was always the thing that when anybody wanted to like change their life, they would just cut their hair. <laughs> and I think that up to these days, you know, like I, I study a lot of rituals and of indigenous rituals in particular, because I'm Mexican, but I, I'm partly indigenous as well. And I'm always going back to that side of me because Obviously, especially right now in, in these times, it's the debate on race and who you are and who you're not is so complicated <laughs> because no one fits any criteria. I think that it's very, very hard, but I'm, I feel very identified with the indigenous side of me. And um, in, in most cultures, when they cut their hair, it's just a matter of letting go of really hard feelings. And that's the way it, it sort of goes through the body. Like in, like in mourning? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's the only moment where they would do it. Right now, I'm experimenting with that. I haven't cut my hair in more than a year. My hair is like <laughs> incredibly long. And it's true that there's so much intuition in hair. Yeah, even the story of Samson in the Bible um, mm -hmm. is an amazing story that, that he's made rendered powerless when a woman against his, you know, without his knowledge, cuts his hair. Exactly. I'm actually writing a, a book where I put together all those references and I'm trying to braid them together to the history of braiding. Oh, that's, I think it's incredible. That's, that's great. That's such a, um, that's such a terrific uh, springboard for talking, like you said, about ritual, about culture, about identity, about humanness, um, about the body. Did your mother braid you when you were little? Do you have any memories of that? Yeah, I have this like kinky like, hair. Um, and I, I didn't get my hair cut from the time I was five till the time I was in junior high school. So I got wow. called a witch a lot. <laughs> um, I didn't, I didn't, I lacked any semblance of fashion sense. So I just had sort of this cape of kinky hair and my mom made me braid it. I wasn't allowed to wear it down unless it was a very special occasion because she thought that was too wild. 
So how long was your hair by the time you cut it for the first time? It was time? like uh, to the very bottom of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Long braids. Do you remember like feeling a difference when you cut it as, uh, on a personal level? Like feeling like you had lost a part of you? Well, actually, <laughs> yeah, because um, I cut it when I was in junior high be totally because I wanted to fit in. And I had no idea how to fit in. And it, it was just like this broad, insane stroke that I just did in desperation. I just went in and said, cut it all off. And the woman was like, really? And she, she just gave me this really short haircut. And for, for months when I'd put on a coat, I would go like this to lift my hair out of the neck of the coat, but it would be a ghost. It would not be there. So it was symbolic, but it was also real in terms of my like flailing attempt to become something that I thought the world wanted to wanted me to be in order to accept me. It didn't exactly <laughs> work that well. It worked a little. Have you ever felt like you fit in anywhere? I haven't. What a what an amazing thing to say. A beautiful woman who's so smart like you to feel that you have never fit in. Um I guess the the times when I feel like I fit in are when I sort of found weirdo artists and writers who, who think about art accept me. Yeah. That was the place where I, I felt like, Oh, I can, I can be strange. I can be problematic. I can be shy and fierce at the same time and not be able to resolve that. And, um, I can be that, in art and with other people who had the same interests. Absolutely. And I see there is like this sort of nostalgia that you go often to through your writing when it comes to prehistoric times. <laughs> There are a couple of poems that refer to that. What is it about that rawness of human, of the human experience? I guess I, I, I don't exactly know. I, I, I think cave paintings are really really beautiful and moving like shockingly so and i can't always i can't exactly figure out why um but i think you know i'm not the only person that thinks this obviously um i, I guess i feel partly like i am a cave person i don't i feel like i'm i'm back there i'm i'm not this completely civilized thing that I'm supposed to pretend to be. And so I, I want to have a dialogue with that, or I want to get in touch with that and understand myself and others. Because I don't think that's a bad thing. No, I, and I think we're more uncivilized than we've ever been. You know? exactly. <laughs> I, I couldn't have gone there, but that's exact. Yeah. So I'm like, well, why not be honest and really try and understand what what we come from and what we have been and um, what our, our best potentials are. Because like you said, unfortunately, I don't think we're all <laughs> enacting them right now. No, I agree. And it's, it's, for me, it's the saddest because I think when we lost connection with the planet, when we lost connection with Mother Nature, it was like we were gone. Empathy was gone. You know, so many things. And there's obviously a, a sense of 
we're not dominators. We're a small part of something that, um, you know, I don't want to be the cliche machine, but that needs to be um, respected and honored and not ravaged. Used. That's the thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Poetry, like every other form of art, is a portal into the mind of the artist. And it's more about what is not written in paper. If you learn to read between the lines, you're able to understand the greatest yearnings of the poet and at the same time understand your own. That's what I think is magic about poetry. It braids together both worlds and both realities. I also see something that really caught my attention because one of my first poems when I was seven years old was on being a boy, on what really? it would be like to be a boy. And then when I you read your poem... <laughs> do you still have your poem from seven years ago? I do. It says something, I mean, it's obviously in Spanish, but it says something about uh, if I were... I'll send you a picture after. Oh, okay. He was saying, if I were a boy, how mean I would be. And like I was just describing like this everything that I was looking at, because obviously Mexico is so a male-dominated country that I had this conception of how I would be, like, so tough instead of being so emotional. Yeah, so, so you were, like, at that early age grappling with the concept of macho and your relationship to it? Definitely. Wow. Yes. So I love, I love to see you also reflect on that. And I, I wanted to ask you, is it like this understanding, I'm trying to find the quote because I had actually written it down. Um, yes. Is, is it a reference to an androgyny when you talk about almost a man uh, and the poem of wanting to be male? Where is this coming from? Yeah. I, I, um, everyone's their own universe. I always felt like I was both. And I... Uh, didn't I mean I'm aware that I'm I'm female, but I, I was also very male identified when I was younger. I I've come to recognize that it, when I was growing up a million years ago, it was like I thought I had a choice between like cooking and washing dishes all the time or getting to go out in the world and do something. And for me, that broke down along gender lines. And so I was like, I'm definitely with the dudes here. I'm definitely doing that. <laughs> Um, you know, cooking's okay, but, um, not my thing Yeah, yeah. Or, or fine, but yeah. So, and also I, I like that Virginia Woolf has a beautiful quote about how everybody has both Orlando. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that amazing book. And that, so that's always how I felt. And I, I feel that there's an amount of that in everyone. It may I agree. be tiny, it may be big, they may choose to ignore it and deny it, they may choose to revel in it, they may choose to blow it up big, but that we're all a mix. Have you ever heard about mushes? So this is, you're going to love this concept, I think, and I can send you a link to a really interesting documentary. So basically, oh, good. Um, actually, in all of our indigenous cultures, before Catholicism came to this continent, there was always this third sex, which is what we think of as transgender. And so in Mexico, 
the Mushes in this area of Oaxaca, where the inspiration for my braid comes from, which is like a, a, a special group of women that are the breadwinners of their community, contrary to all the rest of uh, Mexico, <laughs> kind of, um, they would always have this, this one element in their families. They needed to have a mushe, which was, uh, yeah, by gender in a way, someone that identified with both sexes. And even up to now, you can see these characters that carry both quite openly and it's beautiful because they live them truly. But for us, that meant a spiritual connection. And even in Native American tribes, it was the same thing, the Tequestas, the, the, the Dakotas, the Cherokees, they needed that third sex, which embodied both. And I don't know when we, I mean, I, I don't know when we look at Lost in Translation, but I think we need to grab back those concepts. And I love to see it so well explained through your poetry that it, it, you give a window into that feeling. Yeah, just because as you, I think, are alluding to, it's part of the richness of being human. Everyone can choose their own relationship to it. I'm not saying everyone's bi, everyone's gay. Yes, no. This is all very individual. But to, as I think you were saying, to cut yourself off from that possibility if you feel it in you, or that set of rich, amazing possibilities of fullness of identity or gender identity, sexual identity, erotic identity. I don't know. It makes me sad. <laughs> I agree because it's us putting our own limits. And I, I also think that when you, I mean, I guess this is the poem that gives the name to, to the book scattered at sea. You make this reference, this beautiful, um, it's beautiful. The first two sentences of that poem, I have them here. Yes. Thanks for the rickety body which lends us form and for what we believe can't be scattered at sea. That was my absolute favorite quote of the book. And I imagine it's also dear to you, given <laughs> that that's the title. And I, I first want to, to, to hear what you have to say about it. And then I want to give you my interpretation. Oh, um, uh, well, it's really just a reference to the soul, whatever that is. It's really, and that's exactly it. That it's not a soul cannot be male or female, or in my opinion, both. If you choose to view it in that term, exactly. Yeah, it can be whatever. And I, I, I always think of that notion of the packaging that we have as well, <laughs> and how that's so complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and how the packaging is what makes us so complicated. If we could only see inside instead. Yeah, and the interaction and and conflict and dynamic friction between the container and what's contained, I think, too, because we are mortal. Definitely. And you explore the notion of mortality in a, in a very special way. I imagine that um, apart from what happened to your mother, which I imagine was some sort of Alzheimer. Exactly. She had this thing called vascular dementia, which is exactly the same as Alzheimer's in its symptoms, or at least in her case is what it was, and that's what I was told by her doctors. It just has a different cause. I hadn't heard of that term before. I hadn't either until she got sick. Yes. Just this morning, uh, they were telling my husband that his mother has been diagnosed with Alzheimer. And I was, it's funny because I was literally reviewing that poem of yours when he came oh! to, the room to tell me. Yes. I was like, sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, yes. It's, we, we knew it already. Yeah. We, and I really, I truly identified with what, with the way you were describing that sense 
of your mother feeling that others were there to hurt her or were trying to give her the wrong medication or what do you think about that? Why does that happen? What's going on in the mind? Well, that's an amazing question too. And I wish I was a neurologist, but I am not. So this is, you know, kind of worthless layman speculation. I think that um, if you start to be compromised in any way, um, that's fear inducing if you're aware of it. And it's, so there's one thing that you just start to become paranoid because you, you're suddenly not understanding the world. Cause and effect are not working for you so well anymore. So that's one thing. And relatedly, I think the second thing is that um, we always want to understand and we are used to trying to explain the world to ourselves. That's a part of being alive. So when suddenly you can't find stuff and you can't remember stuff, you're going to want to justify that to yourself. You're going to want your, your brain is going to try to think of an explanation. And especially at first, it was easier for her to think, I think that people were stealing from her than that. She simply could not make new memories. I mean, who wants to come to terms with that? And you talk about this dissonance between the brain and the heart. What's, what, what exactly is that like? Because I guess that's what's the scariest, when you know that there's still a heart inside, that perhaps the brain is not being able to, to process emotions the way it used to. And, and the neurology of the heart, which I don't know if you know this, but it's been proven that we have neurons in the heart. So they That's work differently. Fantastic. I, I, I didn't know that. The gut, the heart, and the brain, the three of them make those connections. That's why fear is always down here. So there's so much we still don't know. But, um, and, but there's so much because that's ancient wisdom. Absolutely. You know, that's all those old metaphors and ideas uh, about the heart. I was listening to um, Antonio Banderas was talking about the – this recent Almodovar movie where he basically plays Almodovar and he has this big heart attack and he, Antonio, Antonio Banderas actually had this oh. a long, a while ago mm -hmm. recovered, but he said that the nurses in the hospital told him, you're going to be really emotional. You're going to cry really easily when things happen to the heart. I know it sounds like, folklore, but you're going to experience this. And he was like, yeah, whatever. And then he said, oh my God, it's completely true. He said, I, how incredible. Yeah. So, so this only, um, only goes to testify to the veracity of what you just said. I think it's, it's so incredible that so many of those things that, as you say, we, we see them as folklore and yet if we only paid more attention take another look because <laughs> exactly science sometimes comes all the way around and is like oh chinese medicine which everyone wanted to say or any um any uh folk medicines or herbal medicines that have been with us for a really long time oh you know <laughs> you know and then they do studies and oh this really works acupuncture is really very the best treatment for some things absolutely and sometimes the power of plants i, I growing up i had a, a nanny 
uh, that came from a little town called Amecameca in Mexico. I didn't grow up with my mother, but I had my nanny. And when I was sick, she would give me these baths with special herbs. And it's all shamanism in a way. What she was bringing about was her knowledge of like deep shamanism, which has a bad rep and is sometimes associated as uh, uh, brujería or like black magic, or but it's not. It's just dealing with plants and understanding their benefits. It's almost as botany, but sometimes brought to a higher level with a metaphysical aspect of calling upon intuition and calling upon all these things. And, and it cured me. <laughs> it works sometimes. It, I mean, you know, it's not for nothing that people keep saying one, one of many reasons not to completely destroy the Amazon is that there are herbs and medicines, even if scientists discover them and then make synthetic versions which is where a lot of our current, you know, Western pharmaceuticals come from. They're based on plant models. They didn't just, many of them didn't just come out of absolutely nowhere. And if we, we destroy that, we do it at our, at the peril of our own health and future, not only because of the role they play, I talk like I know about these things, the, in the ecosystem of the planet, but also because that's a pharmacopoeia in in Definitely. rainforest there's yes. that very old idea um that uh, it's in it's in romeo and juliet where the the um the priest who who marries them and who tries to to help them sadly ineffectively in the end um he said he he's an herbalist and he, that's, that's how he puts Juliet into this fake sleep. It's true. He was a nervous. Yes. And, um, and he has a little speech in Romeo and Juliet as he's collecting herbs about how God is so great in his belief system that for every ill on earth, there is a leaf to cure it. For, that, that the earth was designed so that I'm not saying I necessarily believe this, but it's a, a very poetic idea that, that the earth was designed as this system where, yes, there are diseases and illnesses and wounds, but if you know what you're doing and you, you respect it and study it and cultivate your knowledge, it, it, the whole earth will provide cures for many, many things. I absolutely believe in this. And at the same time, I, it, it sort of brings me back to these thoughts of um, also like the understanding of death as part of our cycle. And when there's a moment where there, there shouldn't even be like this, you know, like amplification of life. What, what are your thoughts on that after having lived through the process of your mother? For example, I'm going to tell you, my father always says that he has all this thing written so that whenever he gets into any of this um, sicknesses, if he was ever to get one of them, he has a plan for sort of assisted suicide mm -hmm. to make sure that he's no longer here. Yeah. So how did you live through death when it comes to your mom and through that process? I'm not very good at thinking, though I write about it or write around it, uh, I'm not very good at thinking clearly about death and confronting it. Um, I try <laughs> very, it's very cultural. Yes, it, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, I, 
with my mother, an interesting thing happened, which is that my whole growing up from being very small, I remember her saying, you know, if I ever get sick and I'm suffering, you have to kill me. And I would be like, I'm not killing you. What are you talking about, mom? But um, she was obsessed with this and she said it constantly. And then she got this vascular dementia and she made it very clear to me that she wanted to live and that she didn't, she didn't, I was like, oh my God, am I going to have to make this decision about like when and how, or is she going to ask me or is she going to, and it was the opposite. It was so weird. How interesting. Yeah, I didn't, it was very unexpected. She, the day before she died, I was driving her somewhere in a car and I had no idea she was going to die the next day. I'd just taken her to the doctor and he said, oh, she's doing pretty good. And she turned to me and she said, you know, I've gotten everything I ever wanted. Mm. And I was like, wow, what? what? What an amazing thing to say. Absolutely, the day before. Yeah, and I, when she said it, I was like, well, okay, that's lovely. You know, I'm driving. Yeah, and you're in your... Oh, I don't know what that... Regular life, yeah. Had that change, but she she started saying, I know I have a lot to live for. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, you're telling me this. I'm listening. And I'm glad because I actually didn't feel like I was, I knew, would know how. I mean, if she had wanted me to get her out of this, I would have had to think about that and figure it out. But she changed her mind. Oh, there must be a vertigo associated to that too, of course. She wanted, she didn't feel that the suffering was terrible and she, she wanted to stay. She wanted to stay. She had grandchildren and um, yeah. So every case is, I guess, you know, duh, completely individual and full of unexpected things. I wish you and your husband and your family all the love and luck um, with this situation that, and, and your mother-in-law as, as well. Thank you. Yes. And she's far, she's in France. So that's the sad part. Yeah. My husband is French, so it's, it's a long way. Oh, and traveling now is like, you can't. Well, we can because of, of the nationality. He has a passport and so it's fine, but still it's, it's just not, (laughs) <laughs> Definitely not ideal. But I think because um, the United States is doing getting such a bad grade in terms of COVID control that maybe some countries are not allowing us people here to go there. Yes. Yeah, with a test, you're able to go. You need to have a, a three-day test. Yeah. Oh, okay. You don't have but... to sit there for two weeks, like hiding. Met. Oh, definitely. Then you have to hide for two weeks. <laughs> that is part of the deal, too. <laughs> Under those circumstances, you could, you, could, she can be visited. Yes. So we will probably spend some time with her soon. I hope. But then I also wanted to ask you, though, after after this conversation that we we've had on your mother, I read in another one of your interviews that you said she never wanted to read your poetry. No, she was totally. <laughs> She, um, yeah, none of my family 
uh, were wanted to, I guess, for various reasons, which when I was younger, really, am I allowed to say bad words? All of them. <laughs> really fucked with my head and it, I upset me. I'm sorry to say that I had that much ego investment or whatever. Um, but she, I, when I was in, right after I got out of college, I published a little chat book and I dedicated it to my parents and I proudly showed them this little thin book with staples in it. And, um, my mother, I think read some of the poems. My father said, Oh, I don't need to read past this page. And it was the dedication to my parents. And I was like, okay, well, at least you saw that I made that gesture. Dedicated it to you. Yeah. And my mother, I think, read some of the poems because she came to, I said, well, what'd you think of the book? And she said, she started crying and she said, I didn't know you were so unhappy. And I was like, oi. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so after that, she, she didn't want to. And I thought, eventually, I mostly have, you know, come to feel that it gave me it and a kind of freedom. I, I didn't have to worry. I care and cared, but um, I, I didn't have to be parallel. Some young writers I talk to are very nervous about publishing things that they feel, even though they wrote them in a, a loving spirit or a spirit of speaking their truth, that their families or people they know might take exception or be hurt or say, that's not my reality. All of which happened. So I, I, I didn't have that problem because nobody in my family read what I write. I'm sure they did, though. <laughs> I, I really do not. No. Also, you know this. A, a lot of people in this culture, poetry isn't a thing they have a big connection to. They might listen to songs all day long. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people they don't read poetry and, and think of it as this dusty, arcane, opaque thing that they're either not going to understand or is going to seem like a greeting card. I don't know. Yeah, the thing is that we, we were too much into, like, really, we stop, we don't understand how to read in between the lines, I think. And poetry is like a painting. You just interpret it according to your own reality. It's not like a set uh, story. Like, I connected with the poems that speak to my reality like everyone probably does. And my idea of them might be totally different to the reason why you wrote them, and that's the magic, but people don't like that instability or that abstraction. But that's confusing to me because isn't that all art? I agree. A film, a TV show, a painting? But film and TV, I think, are, yes, there is an interpretation, but the message is clear. You know who's good, you know who's bad, you know. You know, like it's, the characters are very well set up the way I wish they were in life where you could just say, that's a bad person. And it's not like all these gray hues in between. A lot of decisions would be a lot easier. Yeah, oof, I know, I know. And then I'm also very intrigued by your inner little child and there is this moment, uh, the poem is called Disclaimer, and you say, the melted childhood dreams and beliefs. Which dreams of you, of yours, have melted? Wow. 
I keep saying amazing question, amazing question, but they are amazing questions. Um, well, one belief that's melted is that uh, I don't think there's such a thing as adults. I think I agree. You know, and that that's not an original idea either. But I, the older I get, the more I think we're all little struggling kids of different ages. And that, that isn't a put down because I think children are amazing. Um, but we, we have, so I think people are, this idea of adults is, is kind of false. I mean, yes, you get a credit card, you get a bank account, you may have children yourself, etc. but there's always a part of, maybe it's, even related to what we were speaking about before, about recognizing the child in ourselves, recognizing the animal in ourselves, recognizing the androgyny, androgyny in ourselves, and, and, and recognizing that there are parts of us that are formed very early and never grow up. There, and there are things about myself, for example, that I wish I could grow out of. And then there are things that I'm glad I've been able to retain. Awes and curiosities and a sense of play. But I also find myself having tantrums in my head and stuff like that. No, but it's so How true. old are you, Amy? Come on. <laughs> I always tell people, it's my five-year-old self speaking. Yeah. But listen, yeah. <laughs> because this is the reality. I can try and tell you something really rational, but that's not it. <laughs> and also, you know, there's like, a, sometimes one doesn't want to, one really has to, for the good of oneself and the world, definitely not act out of one's child. But sometimes that is a, uh, I don't know, it sounds corny, but there's a maybe a wisdom there. Yes, yes. We, we've become such a superficial society of know-it-alls as well. Just Googling everything afterwards. And that happens often where I'm like, but have you really read this book? Yes, yes, yes. Like, <laughs> now you're like, no, read no. about it on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Instagram. <laughs> you know, I don't mind that because I think there's also this hunger to, it seems like there's so much out there and you want to kind of, touch and know about it all and your one is made to feel that one must keep up have you watched the social dilemma oh i, I have it queued up is it amazing it talks oh about this. you really need to watch it and you need to write afterwards <laughs> and then you need to publish that <laughs> that's what i wanted to say i also wanted to ask you there's this phrase that I also connected to a lot. Uh, in search of something to worship, uh, my eyes lighted on you. That's one poem. And then in another, you say, I could not save him. It's the same section. Are you talking about the same person? I felt that awful feeling of not being able to save others so often. It's like, is he being a woman? Where is that condition coming from? Do you still experience that feeling of wanting to save others? Um, yes, I think it's something I really have to work on because with me, I think I get really, well, I mean, there's so many things about that. That's such a huge, I think it is, for me, it is related to being raised female during the time and culture 
I was. Um, I was taught that probably my best use was to help and take care of others. And I don't think that's a horrible thing, but I think um, I wasn't taught to think about what is the sense of proportion with that. And also you, you can't usually save other people. I, at one time I wanted to go into psychology. That's what my undergraduate degree is in. And they, they actually talked about what are called rescue fantasies where you think, you know, you can save other people and you can get yourself into a lot of trouble and you can screw them up worse. And, and I don't know if that has anything to do with being an enabler to use that term, Mm -hmm. but these, these are things I think about and I think are sort of temperament and personality defects that I have but so I want to kind of look at them. And I, I also made have made the mistake in my life of carrying that kind of feeling into love relationships, like romantic mm-hmm. or sexual relationships and thinking I could, you know, I mean, it's absurd, but that my love could save someone and from themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so that's a very suspect place to love someone from because it means you want to change them for one thing. And it's also, you've decided they need saving. What do they have to say about it? <laughs> they might be just fine. Yeah. Or they might hate you for it or they, you know, or they might take you down with them or lots of things can happen. Definitely. So what was your main objective with this book? What does Scattered at Sea mean to you? Um, I mean, sometimes when I write book of po- a book of poems, um, it is not particularly thematic. This one was a little bit more because I, I mean, my, my mother was ill and um, I'd much earlier uh, lost a younger brother uh, yeah. and you know you if you ha- are lucky enough to have any kind of a long life you have loss um, and so I was thinking about mortality and uh, ashes and you know uh, how long we live and what and I was also thinking about scattering mm-hmm. about my mother's sort of scattered thoughts and scattering my brother's ashes and feeling scattered as a thinking person. Um, And just, yeah, those, those sort of images and metaphors about mortality and scattering. Do you think that there's also some sort of dialogue within yourself of trying to understand as well your own mortality? Always. And of course, I mean, it's, I think for many, many, many humans, at least at certain times in their lives, I would guess that that thought, the thought of mortality that you try, there are many things in you that you try to push it away or to never think about it. And it's also the thing you can never stop thinking about. I mean, you walk around and you see a a squished bug and it's like, well, how long was that poor creature's life? And 
I hope it was good. <laughs> so true. Yeah. I get that more and more, especially with birds. There's peacocks all over here. I'm in Miami and in the Grove, there's a lot of peacocks. And once I woke up, went out the door, I was getting ready to take my kids to school and there was this just dead peacock. Oh God. And it's such an awful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it sends you down all kinds of interesting rabbit holes and thought paths about yourself and the lives around you and what lasts and what doesn't, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> A beautiful conciliation of this, going back to the cultural aspect that you were mentioning of uh, the United States in a way and how they understand death, is the, um, the Mexican Day of the Dead ritual, which is not, it doesn't have to be elaborate. It's basically placing a picture of all the people that you've lost. And we add sugar skulls to each of them just to speak about how, you know, how like life dissolves like sugar and there's all these connotations to it. And you put candles and you add copal and different elements just to honor them and to remember them from a, on a happy perspective, on a happy note. And it's the most beautiful thing. The date is November the 2nd and it's a matter of uh, physics. It's actually said that there's this really strange thing when it comes to the different dimensions and how they align through those dates. And it coincides with all the traditions uh, throughout the world, like um, uh, Dia de los Santos, in Os Ay, how is it called? In French, it's another name, but it's the same thing. And it's done the same day. Here, it's the 31st of October, but um, the 1st of November for France, and it's called different, but it's same tradition. So try to do it those days. It's very healing. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time, Amy. This was such a lovely conversation. I, I, I truly, enjoyed truly it immensely it. and I wish it, I'm sure you have other things to do, but I've loved talking to you and wish it could go on for a, a much longer time. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Special thanks to Miami Book Fair Online for facilitating this conversation. Scattered at Sea by Amy Gressler is published by Penguin Press. Music production and audio editing by Nori Ehrenfeld.